Chapter 4 Miriam loved having visitors at the Kolba, the village Arbab and his gifts, Bibi Joe, and her aching hip and endless gossiping, and of course, Mola Fazola. But there was no one, no one, that Miriam longed to see more than Jaleel. The anxiety set in on Tuesday nights. Miriam would sleep poorly, fretting that some business entanglement would prevent Jaleel from coming on Thursday. That she would have to wait a whole other week to see him. On Wednesdays, she paced outside around the Kolba, tossed chicken feed absentmindedly into the coop. She went for aimless walks, picking petals from flowers and batting at the mosquitoes nibbling on her arms. Finally, on Thursdays, all she could do was sit against a wall, eyes glued to the stream, and wait. If Jaleel was running late, a terrible dread filled her bit by bit. Her knees would weaken and she would have to go somewhere and lie down. Then Nana would call, and there he is, your father, in all his glory. Miriam would leap to her feet when she spotted him hopping stones across the stream, all smiles and hearty waves. Miriam knew that Nana was watching her, gauging her reaction, and it always took effort to stay in the doorway, to wait, to watch him slowly make his way to her, to not run to him. She restrained herself, patiently watched him walk through the tall glass, and his suit slung over his shoulder, the breeze lifting his red necktie. When Jaleel entered the clearing, he would throw his jacket on the tander and open his arms. Miriam would walk and then finally run to him, and she would catch her under the arms and toss her up high. Miriam would squeal. Suspended in the air, Miriam would see Jaleel's upturned face. Below her, his wide, crooked smile, his widow's peak, his cleft chin, a perfect pocket for the tip of her pinky, his teeth, the whitest in a town of rotting molars. She liked his trimmed mustache, and she liked that no matter the weather, he always wore a suit on his visits dark brown, his favorite color, with the white triangle of handkerchief in the breast pocket, and cufflinks too, and a necktie, usually red, which he left loosened. Miriam could see herself too, reflected in the brown of Julia's eyes, her hair billowing, her face blazing with excitement, the sky behind her. Nana said that one of these days he would miss, that she, Miriam, would slip through his fingers, hit the ground, and break a bone, but Miriam did not believe Julia would drop her. She believed that she would always land safely into her father's clean, well-manicured hands. They sat outside the kolba in the shade, and Nana served them tea. Jaleel and she acknowledged each other with an uneasy smile and a nod. Jaleel never brought up Nana's rock-throwing or curse her cursing. Despite her rants against him when, when he wasn't around, Nana was subdued and mannerly when Jaleel visited. Her hair was always washed, she brushed her teeth, wore her best hijab for him. She sat quietly on a chair across from him, hands folded on her lap. She did not look at him directly and never used coarse language around him. When she laughed, she covered her mouth with a fist to hide the bad tooth. Nana asked about his business and his wives, too. When she told him that she heard through Bibi Joe that his youngest wife, Nayi, was expecting her third child, Jaleel smiled and courteously and nodded. Well, you must be happy, Nana said. How many is that for you now? Ten? Is it, Masala? Ten? Jaleel said, yes, ten. Eleven, if you count Miriam, of course. Later, after Jaleel went home, Miriam and Nana had a small fight about this. Miriam said that she had tricked him. After tea with Nana, Miriam and Jaleel always went fishing in the stream. He showed her how to cast her line, how to reel in the trout. He taught her the proper way to gut a trout, to clean it, to lift the meat off the bone in one motion. 
He drew pictures for her as they waited for a strike, showed her how to draw an, ele an elephant in one stroke without ever lifting the pen off the paper. He taught her rhymes. Together they sang, Lily Lily Birdbath, sitting on a dirt path. Minnow sat on the rim and drank, slipped, and in the water she sank. Jaleel brought clippings from Harat's newspaper and read from them to her. He was Miriam's link, her proof that they, there existed a world at large beyond the Kolba, beyond Goldamon and Harat too. A world of presidents with unpronounceable names and trains and museums and soccer and rockets that orbited the earth and landed on the moon. And every Thursday, Jaleel brought a piece of that world with him into the Kolba. He was the one who told her in the summer of 1973, when Miriam was 14, that King Zahir Shah, who had ruled from Kabul for 40 years, had been overthrown in a bloodless coup. His cousin, Daud Khan, did it while the king was in Italy, getting medical treatment. You remember Daud Khan, right? I told you about him anyway. He was in prime minister in Kabul when you were born. Anyway, Afghanistan is no longer a monarchy, Miriam. You see, it's a republic now, and Daud Khan is the president. There are rumors that the socialists in Kabul kept, helped him take power. Not that he's a socialist himself, mind you, but that they helped him. That's the rumor anyway. Miriam asked him what a socialist was, and Jaleel began to explain, but Miriam barely heard him. Are you listening? I am. He saw her looking at the bulge of his coat's side pocket. Ah, of course. Well, here then, without further ado. He fished a small box from his pocket and gave it to her. He did this from time to time, bring her small presents. A carnelian bracelet cuff one time, a choker with lapis lazuli beads another. That day, Miriam had opened the box and found a leaf-shaped pendant, tiny coins etched with moons and stars hanging from it. Try it on, Miriam Joe. She did. What do you think? Jaleel beamed. I think you look like a queen. After he left, Nana saw the pendant around Miriam's neck. Nomad jewelry, she said. I've seen them make it. They melt the coins people throw at them and make jewelry. Let's see him bring you gold next time, your precious father. Let's see him. When it was time for Jalil to leave, Miriam always stood in the doorway and watched him exit the clearing, deflated at the thought of the week that stood, like an immense, immovable object, between her and his next visit. Miriam always held her breath as she watched him go. She held her breath and in her head counted seconds. She pretended that for each second that she didn't breathe, God would grant her another day with Jaleel. At night, Miriam lay in her cot and wondered what his house in Herat was like. She wondered what it would be like to live with him, to see him every day. She pictured herself handing him a towel as he shaved, telling him when he nicked himself. She would brew tea for him. She would sew on his missing buttons. They would take walks in Herat together, in the vaulted bazaar where Jaleel said you could find anything you wanted. They would ride in his car and people would point and say, there goes Julio Khan with his daughter. They would show her the famed tree that he had a poet buried beneath it. One day soon, Miriam decided she would tell Julio these things. And when he heard, when he saw how much she missed when he was gone, he would surely take her with him. He would bring her to Herat to live in his house, just like his other children. So now Miriam is really longing for her father. She's wanting father figure and she she's wanting to live with him and live the life that his other kids get to live and she sees him as this 
this person that will do anything for her and protect her and will never let her down. I mean, that's her father. But, you know, her mother, of course, would never let that happen. And does he truly want her to live with him? Uh, We don't know. But that's kind of what happened in that chapter. So, love you.